My recipes were intended and made to recreate an at-home experience of the Poilin baking methodologies. And I think for all of the science we put into baking, sometimes, and I think that's also why people enjoy baking so much, it's about surrendering to the fact that our ingredients have to come into conversation with our hands and we have to surrender to what nature has given us that day. This is the Sourdough Podcast, the show about the innovators, leaders, and creative trailblazers in the sourdough community and the stories behind the bread. I'm Mike Kilburn, and on this episode, Apollonia Polan joins me to share some secrets from her world-famous Parisian bakery and to talk about her first English-language cookbook. She tells us how she was prepared for the role she found herself taking on unexpectedly at the age of 18 and the personal mark she's made on her family's business in her 17 years as CEO. Before we start the show, I wanted to express my appreciation once again for those of you who have supported the show financially. Last weekend, when my guest Apollonia was in San Francisco, I was able to book a recording studio in the city for our interview. This was made possible by your generous donations. Your support really does go a long way, and I think you'll be able to hear the difference it makes in today's interview. So thanks again to my financial supporters. Your generosity made this week's episode possible. If you feel you've been inspired by the stories on the podcast, please consider supporting it by contributing any amount on my support page. It's as easy as clicking on the support button and selecting any amount. If you're short on cash, one of the most helpful things you can do to support the podcast is to share, rate, and review. If you want to see the Sourdough Podcast continue to grow and continue to bring you inspiring stories from our amazing community, please take a moment to share the podcast on Instagram or Facebook or rate and review it on iTunes. As always, stay tuned after the podcast for new music from Weston Perry and check out his website, westonperrymusic.com, to download his new EP from the attic. Now, here's my interview with Apollonia Polan. My guest today is Apollonia Polan, a third-generation baker from Paris and CEO of her family bakery, founded in 1932 by her grandfather, Pierre Polan, and later expanded and brought to international fame by her father, Lionel. Alice Waters said of Polan Bakery that in many ways, all good bread we have now in the United States exists thanks to Polan's beautiful meat, their signature sourdough loaf. Apollonia is here today in San Francisco on tour promoting her latest book, Polan, The Secrets of the World Famous Bread Bakery, and has graciously agreed to join me to share her story and talk about her world famous bread. Apollonia, uh, welcome to the Sourdough Podcast, and uh, it's just an honor to have you. Thank you for greeting me. Uh, you know, I also want to preface this whole interview by with an apology for any attempt at correct uh, French p- pronunciation. Um, <laughs> but I think you're doing pretty well. Okay. Um, my first name is is complicated and definitely very French. Yes. Po- How do you pronounce it? Poilan. Poilan. And if you replace the I by an A, you will get a pronunciation that, for an English speaker, will be a little easier to come around. Poilan. Beautiful. All right. Well, 
no promises. I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll work on it, and um, we'll keep moving. But before we do get to the book, I was uh, hoping you could share with our audience, uh, in your own words, a little bit about yourself and your bread journey, uh, especially for our listeners who might be new to baking and might not be familiar with your bakery and its influence in the baking world. Yeah. Um, well, my name is Apollonia Follan. I am a 35-year-old baker and CEO of my family's business. Poilan is a third-generation bread bakery. You're based in Paris, and my grandfather started a family business by creating a bakery where we specialized in wheat sourdough loaves. As I describe them in the book, they are big hugs of bread, and I describe them that way because I was trying to find words to reflect the volume and size of this bread that was meant to feed you, to keep my father took over the family business in the 70s, structured it, and expanded it. Uh, we opened in the early 2000s a branch in London, um, but we've been selling around the world since the 70s. And so Poilan to date is a bakery both in Paris and London, serving our local communities um, and distributing across town. And beyond that, we also have a business selling bread in France, the UK, around Europe, and around the world. Yeah, uh, referring back to that quote, you know, of Alice Waters saying, good bread exists in the United States, uh, in large part due to your family's influence. Um, I know so many of our country's best bakers can and have said the same thing. Bakers like uh, Nancy Silverton of, of La Brea Bread, Steve Sullivan of Acme Bread, uh, Daniel Leader, one of my former guests, Bread Alone. Um, are all among bakers that attribute their early influences and inspiration uh, to your bakery. I'm curious, growing up, were you always aware of your family's influence in the baking world? Well, I think I have been very fortunate with my parents to be exposed from a very young age to the links between breads and um, men and women of this world. Um, my parents had a tremendous sense of humor, so my crib was a uh, bread basket turned, <laughs> turned crib. So, and I say this because I really have been immersed into this world since a very, very um, young age. And it, to me, um, it's my experience from, um, from inside um, the business and being the daughter of my father has been to see the links between breads and communities, civilizations, um, different cultures and um, different domains of knowledge. And I think that is ultimately what has fed my passion and my love for my craft. Yeah. Uh, how would you say uh, you were prepared for this role that you find yourself in now as as the CEO of your family bakery? Well, as far as I can remember, I've always known that I wanted to take over the family business, but it happened much sooner than planned. I was 18 years old when my parents passed away in an accident. My father was a helicopter pilot, passionate helicopter pilot, and unfortunately crashed um, with my mother. I took over the family business at that point, um, but I had always known that I would take over the family business. And, and so throughout my childhood, I had geared my studies and was looking at going to college um, to study economics in, with the perspective of taking over the family business in time 
and slowly facing things with my father. Yeah, and so, and how old were you when you did take over? So I was 18. But the other part of this is, so I had very little business experience, but I had two very crucial and helpful um, things going on for me. Number one, I was a baker. Since the time I was 16, my mom told me that I should start baking in the bakehouse and on a May holiday, and France in May is known to be clad with bank holidays, so... I spent a lot of time with my master baker, Felix, um, and then as my year off um, was kicking off, I was wrapping up my apprenticeship. Um, and then being the daughter of an entrepreneur, you know, I was immersed in his world. And so for lack of business experience, I had all the knowledge and understanding of how he went about his business. And another aspect of things, actually, um, to add on, is that my father had a great team of men and women working with him, um, people that, for the, some part, I still work with today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, reading your story and, and just trying to put myself in your place, 18, just starting college, you know, I'm trying to think of, you know, when I was 18 and, and just, you know, barely figuring out how to uh, start or cl- do my own laundry. <laughs> and here you are starting your... Uh, taking over your your family company, um, what I, I can't imagine, like uh, you know the th- what was running on. To my yeah, head? what was going through your mind, and, and how how you, you adjusted to such a monumental shift at that point in your life. So, so for me, the first and foremost, there was a sense of obviousness. This was my place, and this was my time. Um, much sooner than planned, much more brutal and sudden. But there was a sense of obviousness that took over everything else. And having spent my Wednesday afternoons um, as a kid playing in the bakehouse, um, like other kids might play in the sandpit, mm-hmm. um, le- earning my pocket money by doing all the little things that would help out the teams, um, really groomed me to take over the, the business. And so I was familiar with the teams I worked with and um, they they knew me working in the bakehouse uh, from the age of 16. And, and all of those things helped me um, override any other feelings that could have arisen at that mm. point. When my parents passed away, I, I knew that this was my, my calling, my time. And what was also clear to me, and the real question was, I was on a year off before I went to college. And the real question for me was, will I manage to do both? And yeah. I did. Yeah. I got my degree in 2007. Um, I studied economics at Harvard. And it was it was an amazing experience. Well, and, and then that, you know, uh, is a bit of a departure from your, your predecessor's experience, actually, wanting that and pursuing that. that as a calling. I remember uh, reading a little bit about your father and, and uh, the story of when he was 14 and, yeah, and crying. Yeah, and he was forced into the business. Yes. And, and I think that's also, you know, in large part, my love for my craft comes from my father being forced into the business when he was 14, not necessarily knowing. And, you know, I don't think any of us really knew what, you know, even I knew that I was going to take over the family business. I didn't really realize what that meant mm. at the end of 14. Um, and and I at, today, I don't know what it will mean in 10 or 20 years from now. But 
my father had been forced into the family business by his father. And it was through the understanding that bread relates to just about anything that he was able to understand the value of his craft, but also share it. Mm. And first and foremost, um, with his partner, our mother, I have a younger sister, and and us, their children. Yeah. And uh, yeah, also, and as you're, as you state, you know, your fa- your grandfather was also, uh, this was also maybe a secondary choice of career, having wanted to be a, an architect. An architect, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. No, 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 absolutely. I mean, we do have a very, we sometimes talk about it with my sister. And if we look at both of our um, parents' families, they all are in the crafts one way or the other there are mm. people who are interested in using their hands in exchanging with the world creating things um and uh, we were commenting the two of us on that because um, we really cherish our childhood being exposed to a variety of people with various interests and mm. we love nothing more than to discover and learn new things it was um it, it it has been it's it's been something that we know like fuels us on it nurtures us on a daily basis. Yeah. Well, I feel like it was such a blessing to be able to be to be that age and that point in your life and to have that sense of direction and calling where oh, I know most most eighteen year olds do not have that. So no, it's true, and it probably did help me also, you know, overcome other aspect real aspects of losing your parents oh. for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, here you are today. You are uh, the CEO, the owner of, of your, your family bakery. You've just written a book. This is not your only book. You've written a few books in France. Is that right? That's correct. I've, I've written a few books um, since 2002, but this is my first book in English. Yeah. And I am super proud because I've been asked by some of my French friends, well, why is the book in English? And I was like, well, A, I've never written anything in English, so that makes a lot of sense. But mostly... Having gone to college in the U.S., writing in English comes more mm. naturally to me than it comes huh. to in French. That's interesting. Well, congratulations on, on a beautiful book. Thank you. Uh, it's such a good read and, uh, you know, really gave me a sense of uh, not only was I like have a, feel like I was taking a tour of your bakery, but also kind of got the sense that I was going through your life and your story and, and kind of your day-to-day experiences as a baker and owner. And and that's exactly what I wanted. I wanted people to get a sense of what goes on in the bakery, um, in at Poilin Bakery. So this, the book is structured to really give you a glimpse into what goes on over the course of 24 hours. There are three parts to it. The morning hours where I go into our story why we do the bread we do and how we go about it um, i provide recipes of how to do at-home versions of my breads uh, my cookies and my baker's pastries and then the daytime hours from midday to midnight are devoted to using bread um, as an ingredient what i call bread cooking but it's also about telling people bread is not just an incredible food, versatile, that can feed wonderful moments, that feeds the community, that feeds friendships, but it's also an ingredient and a pretty cool one for that. Mm. And then the nighttime hours, the third parts are devoted to echo just how hard it is when you work at night and you're completely out of sync with most people's rhythms 
um, on why this craft is so important to me and how from the times I worked at night on night shifts to the course of time thinking about my craft and why am I so attached to my family's business, um, my outlook on my, on baking um, as the crossroads between cereal grains and fermentation. Mm. And, and so, so if, if you've had that impression, then I've checked that box Great. and I'm, I'm thrilled. Yeah. So you, in the beginning, uh, I believe page seven, you write that uh, you, you sought to ensure that every page of this book reflects your thoughts and in, in your baker's philosophy, uh, bakery's philosophy, while being sensitive to an American audience. Mm-hmm. Um, can you expand more on that uh, last part and, and kind of what were your main challenges in writing this book to an American audience? And how would you describe kind of the main differences between French and American artisan baking? Yeah. I mean, one thing that's very that's very unique about Poilin is the way we go about our 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 baking process. We use our five senses as bakers to perfect our loaves, our batches of breads, our batches of cookies, our batches of baker's pastries. And that's part of what we teach our bakers over the course of nine months um, during their apprenticeship. There's many things that separates um, French from American um, baking traditions um, and just the sheer history of our of the two countries. Um, but I think there's also what brings them to you know what what they have in common, um, and which is and I've seen this over the years an interest in the quality of the ingredients. Um, my, I don't think it will surprise people that my grandfather in the thirties had worked with some of the flower makers to really work on the quality of the grains he had. Um, we use grains that we know most of the farmers of, and, um, we've worked at having exclusively stone milled grains because we, we've from experience and we found that it's, it just has a better quality to it. Um, it keeps the natural oils in the grains, and therefore we don't need to add anything to the flour to um, make it work well. Um, but but they are different lifestyles. Um, and I think if you look at um, bakeries across America, they're very different realities, right? But um, a few things that are specific about the French um, baking styles that there really is a bakery at every street corner. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, my grandfather started making these big miches because he needed to make a difference when there was almost half a dozen bakeries on the same block when he started. And he turned, he was fortunate to turn to a tradition that spoke to the artisan and craftsmen who were working and living in the neighborhood and who needed something that would feed them, something that would keep. Um, but if you go into a typical French city, you will have a bakery at almost every street corner. And our it, bakeries really are the center point of, um, of a neighborhood. And it's at Poilin, it is n- not different. Uh, we are very fortunate to be in an area where we also get tourists from across the world. So we get to meet incredible people who come with different traditions um, and different um, interests to the bakery. But we, 
if you come on a typical Saturday afternoon, um, you will get a slice of our neighborhood, um, of the men and women that um, live um, or come walking around there with today um, their children, maybe after tomorrow their grandchildren. And over the years, mm. I've seen generations. Yeah, it, it kind of reminds me of um, one of my former guests, uh, Maurice. She's a director from France and, and talking about sourdough and natural leavened bread and kind of, you know, this movement in, in, in the United States uh, that's, you know, come and gone over the decades of, you know, home baking and cottage bakeries and um, about and she, she, what she said was, you know, in France, there's a bakery on every corner. So people are exposed and used to having access to such is good, good bread all the time, where in the United States, that's not always necessarily the case. And so she thought maybe that that had a role to play in why people have this kind of resurgence of interest in, in baking and in, in discovering artisan bread for the first time here, where it's uh, maybe not as a big of a trend in France because they have such access. Is that something you've yeah, experienced think, or would agree with? I think that's absolutely right. And I, you know, the other parallel you could do is with um, the bean to bar movement and chocolate. It, you know, it just stems from from different from different starting points, but it gets to that same common goal, which is how to eat a better piece of bread. Yeah. Um, in in the first section of your book, uh, Morning, uh, you focus on breads and breakfast and, and describe uh, the sourdough at, at Poilan, uh, which really goes back, I mean, like you said, back to the roots of your, mm -hmm. your grandfather's bakery. Um, and on the cover of the book, there's a picture of your famous loaf. But for our listeners, do you think you can describe a little more detail um, uh, your signature sourdough loaf and, and what makes it so unique? On the cover of the book, there is a wheat sourdough loaf. Um, I'm holding it in my hands. I'm wearing the jacket my father gave me when I was 14 to um, pass on the, the flambeau, as they would say in, in French. Um, and it is a big hug of bread um, that is about four pounds heavy. It's covered in flour. I love that you call it a big hug of bread. <laughs> I do because it's, you know when you when if you want to describe the volume, and in writing this book, I was I was thinking about an American audience, and I was thinking, well, what are descriptors that will speak to people? Because, you know, when you think of bread, it can take so many different shapes and forms. Um, it's it's about the volume. It's about the flavors that come out of it. It's the looks. Our, our loaf is is clad in flour because we rise it in uh, wicker baskets that are covered in flour. We draw a pea just as the loaf enters our wood-fired brick ovens, and once you cut through the through the crust, it's a thick, dark, chocolatey crust. You have this dense, creamy dough. Um, it's very uniform it's um it's clad with, with the little holes of from fermentation mm -hmm. and it just if you bite through it whether with your nose with your eyes or with your mouth you just get a sense of density of a full-bodied piece of bread mm -hmm. and the ingredients you've already talked kind of about the flour the salt again is is unique to to france to your bakery can you tell us about that yeah so we have our sourdough, the sourdough that we've been nurturing from since 1932, generations of loaves and generations of bakers later. Um, 
Our flower is a stone ground, uh, wheat flower, rye flower, or corn flower, um, depending on the bread you choose. We use sea salt from Guérande. And sea salt from Guérande is a region of France where there is um, the, the, the salt you have, if you have the same amount of salt um, than an, salt from another region, if you have a, a taste of that one, it will the flavor will be that much more potent, and and that's it's an interesting it's an interesting sulfur. It's rather gray. It has a little bit of the the clay of the of this sea salt um, basin in where it's harvested, um, and it really does give a different taste to the bread. Uh, for a couple of years, we the late nineties. Uh, we were unable to um, have it because there had been some issues with some um, oil spills farther out on on the coast, but that had had an impact on how much um, people were willing to um, sell for uh, of the product. But to cut the long story short, we had to have a substitute salt for a little while, and you could tell the difference. Wow! Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the ingredients you use are are so unique, and um, it really, I imagine, it makes it a, a challenge to reproduce it for like a home baker. Absolutely. Can you can you kind of tell us more about to me what seems like an, that impossible task of, of creating a recipe for your one of a kind sourdough miche um, that you know someone potentially new to baking could successfully achieve? Yeah. So. At Poilan, what we teach our bakers during our nine months of training is how to use your five senses and attuning them to how to perfect and micro-tune the recipe here and there to have the same quality product, whether it's hot or cold, dry or humid. When you're at home and you're doing one batch, you don't have the same momentum, you don't have the same tools, you don't have the same volume to recreate that ex that experience. And... So I focused on the latter, how to use your five senses, because as you embark on baking bread at home, invariably, my recipe will soon be completely obsolete to you. <laughs> it will be a base from which you will have worked on perfecting it to your kitchen, you will have chosen your ingredients, and what I am hoping is to give people a jump start, get you on your saddle, and get going. Mm -hmm. But... My recipes were intended and made to recreate an at-home experience of the Poilan baking methodologies. And I think for all of the science we put into baking, sometimes, and I think that's also why people enjoy baking so much, it's about surrendering to the fact that our ingredients have to come into conversation with our hands and we have to surrender to the to what nature has given us that day. Mm -hmm. Now you do include, um, I mean, obviously the salt is going to be different. Your, your salt is saltier, so I imagine. But you can find it in, could, the, in the U.S. And, you know, even a quality, a quality sea salt is, is, will, be, will already get you a long way. Mm -hmm. um, it might not be from the same region. And then the water, you know, might be different in your home kitchen or... Obviously, the heating vessel, most of us don't have wood-fired ovens. So there's mm -hmm. so there are so many differences. But you, like you're saying, it, it's more about kind of getting us on our own track of discovering sourdough. Um, you do include a yeast in your, your recipe. Do. Is that not? I've, I've learned that. It's a little bit at odds with what I do at the bakery because I use sourdough. But I was just about getting 
a Kickstarter. Yeah, because I've I've heard that in in Europe that it is actually you know by definition sourdoughs can have a small fraction. In sourdoughs, and it's such common misconception. You know, you can buy a sourdough off of a catalog in Europe. So. When someone says this is sourdough bread, I like to scratch behind the words and understand what is their sourdough tradition. Mm. Because there is many sourdough traditions as there are families and bakeries. Um, our sourdough is a solid sourdough. So a piece of dough from one batch mm. that we've nurtured to become sour to the point that it will serve as a starter for the following batch. We'll add water, flour, salt, and we'll have our batch of bread. We'll keep a piece aside from that use that as a as a starter for our the next sourdough and the rest will be turned into our wheat our mm. rye our corn um breads um and you know we'll whether plain or with nuts or dried fruit yeah well i i can't wait to get home and, and maybe try try your your version and and kind of compare notes to kind of what i've been baking at home and uh, maybe get my hands on some good uh, French sea salt. And, yeah, but um, just get your hands dirty, full yeah. of flour, enjoy the process. I mean, my hope is that my readers will take this book and it will foster a family moment, um, a fun afternoon for a rainy day, mm. um, or a fun adventure. Hi, it's me, Mike, again. At the beginning of the show, I mentioned how you could support the podcast financially by clicking on the support button. But hey, I get it. Warm and fuzzies are nice. But sometimes you think, I wish I could listen to and support the podcast and look good doing it. Well, friend, I've got the answer for you. Introducing the Sourdough Podcast t-shirt and the Sourdough Podcast UFO LOM by our friend Tyler at the Wire Monkey Shop. Now you can listen to and support your favorite sourdough-themed podcast all while looking quite sharp in your mauve, sunset, or Colombian blue-colored, super-soft Bella Canvas tea. Not cool enough, you say? Well, how about adding a handcrafted walnut lam emblazoned with the Sourdough Podcast logo to your quiver? This season, all my guests will receive this one-of-a-kind limited-edition lam. And now, you too can score your perfect loaf like the pros. A portion of all proceeds goes right back into the production of the podcast, so you can look good and feel good at the same time, knowing your support is helping inspire our sourdough community. Not your style? Maybe you have a sourdough fanatic in your family. Talk about the perfect Christmas present. So head on over to the podcast website shop. Your support makes all the difference. Now, back to the show. Well, towards the end of your book, um, you discuss some of your dreams and explorations uh, regarding the future of Polan. Uh, specifically, you contemplated the idea of, of what constitutes good bread uh, in the first place and uh, what kind of grains can be used uh, to make bread. Um, you've talked about, you know, uh, the wheat and, and where you uh, source that wheat mm -hmm. and, and um, some of the more, I guess, traditional bread making ingredients like uh, rye and wheat. Um, but can you talk a little bit maybe about some of those experiments you've been doing in recent years and, and kind of looking forward to the future? You mentioned cornbread. Yeah. Well, over the years, um, through encounters, through traveling, I've come to realize that bread traditions take on many, many different clothes, so to speak. Uh, a bowl of rice in Japan, uh, a potato maybe in Ireland. I have a friend who told me that she was once served a potato instead of a 
slice of bread at the table um, or a piece of bread, um, wheat, rye bread, cornbread in the U.S., um, or flatbread um, in Ethiopia. I've come to realize that all of those experiences are about feeding something very elementary and something that nurtures you inside out, feeds your body, feeds your mind. Uh, because it has fed your body, it frees up the mind to venture out to other things. And that's where I have come to believe that bread for me is that crossroads between cereal grains and fermentation. And the consequence of that is an outlook I have on my craft that also comes from the French language of bread baking. Um, if you say this is uh, a rye bread, it's a bread with rye flour. Um, it, when I looked into cornbread recipes in the U.S., I found that cornbread recipes called for 50% wheat flour, which makes sense when you realize, you know, the corn flour does not have gluten in it. Mm. But that to me was mind puzzling because, you know, if you were to say cornbread to me, that meant it was a bread with corn flour. Mm -hmm. So my challenge from there was, well, let's try and do a 100% corn flour bread. Similarly, in this in third part of the book, I really try and give a gl glimpse into my outlook and the work that I've been doing over the years with my teams on exploring the tastes and flavors of different grains. Mm. I have a range now of seven biscuits, seven, sorry, seven cookies. Biscuits is the French word. <laughs> um, very different in the U.S. Um, and I just, I don't know, I just find it kind of elegant because biscuit means that it's been twice cooked and just... It just works well for me. Mm -hmm. But um, when I think cookies, I think, you know, the chocolate chip cookies. So, <laughs> um, but so I now have this collection of seven cookies with different grains and each one of them have a different personality. And one where my hope is through this vessel, through this food, give my clients a, ten a sense of what is the taste of barley? Mm. What is the flavors or what are the flavors of oats what is the taste and uniqueness about corn flour and how i was able to reduce by 20 percent the amount of sugar in my biscuit because in my cookie <laughs> because because naturally corn flour has such a sweet taste um so all of those explorations are what feed is what is currently feeding Poilin sourdoughs um, and what will be tomorrow on the shelf. Yeah. It just made me think, you know, there's so much you know interest nowadays in, in fermentation mm -hmm. and people are rediscovering it. And, um, you know, the term local grain economy is something that's really picking up uh, steam here in the U.S. And, and people are, are interested in, in that, you know, you know, in accessing, new ways of, of feeding themselves and their family and and wanting to know where those grains come from. However, it doesn't seem like this is like a new concept, obviously, for Poilan, your bakery, and, and, and where you guys have historically always... That's true. But we've also done it because from the start, we have been... I mean, no pun intended, but this has been ingrained in Poilan's tradition. Mm -hmm. We set ourselves apart by not wanting to do bread that was whitened in small formats. And as a result of that, from the very start, we have nurtured that conversation between past and present techniques, between what people want and what will what we think is nurturing, not only now for our stomachs, but also for the community at large. 
Um, and, and so, you know, my grandfather was very much planted a, a solid seed or has grown some solid roots to, um, to nurture that, mm. um, that tree. And, and, you know, as the generations, uh, go on, well, you know, hopefully there's new branches and new fun, um, adventures to, that people will appreciate as well. Yeah. So you... You, in your time as CEO, you've you've introduced new products, new uh, recipes, new um, grains into mm -hmm. the menu. Uh, what are some developed other... stores? Yes, developed stores. Uh, what other in what other ways have have you has the company grown since you've mm. um, become well, CEO? Since two thousand two, I've developed um, new cookie ranges. Uh, we had our little punition, our rounded, scalloped, um, edged round um, wheat flour sablé. Um, and now I have a collection of these um, cookies. I also have a spoon-shaped cookie. Um, so it's not only the recipe, but it's also the form, mm -hmm. thinking about the uses of our products. Um, and then it's also, you know, physical places. I've opened two stores in Paris, a cafe in London. Um, but it's also the thought process that I've put behind um, my my craft. And one of the things that is important to me is um, getting people to reflect about um, the grains they eat and naming them. You know, flour does not necessarily mean wheat flour. Mm -hmm. All purse-purse flour commonly means wheat but yeah. does it have to and 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 for me having been exposed to growers to um, different cultures using different grains because that's what's there on the terrain or in that geography has fed a desire to really try and be as precise as possible um, and broaden perspectives by thinking about um, grains and fermentation is all uh, Palom bread uh, manufactured in Paris or in the manufactory? So we have four stores in Paris, three of which have their own bakehouse, so they supply their need. We bake throughout the day, so we're able to really best fit what we need. The fourth store has a mill. In London, we have a similar operation, but in Paris, we have our manufacture. And my parents built this place 35 years ago, um, putting together their talents. My mom is an architect. My father is a baker to respond to an increase in demand, but without compromising on quality. And their response was, if we create 24 ovens, one next to the other, and they operate as 24 different bakeries, then we're able to scale quantities, but we don't, we don't have a production line. Each baker does their bread from start to finish on their own. Wow. Unless they have an apprentice. Uh -huh. That's amazing. And uh, I'm just curious, I mean, would you, so in London, all the the bread is... Baked on premise. Baked on premise. Okay. Yeah. Well, have you ever considered or would you ever have a um, a bakery here in the States or have you thought of Yeah. That? Well, I mean, you know, I know it's been 17 years since I've been in charge of this, but I went to, went to Harvard. Um, I developed a business in London, um, started writing this book, um, a little six, a little over six years ago, um, so I've, I've I've kept myself busy. But I am always interested in doing new adventures, mm. and we're 
we're always there's we have more to come. Yeah. Well, we're ready in uh, <laughs> in California when you're ready to. But uh, there's expand. also an amazing bread baking tradition in the U.S. Um, that has been growing through the years, and and I think um, you know kudos to to the American bakers out there that work hard to um, uphold our our wonderful grains in this country. Yeah. So uh, transitioning topics a little bit, um, I always like to hear from our guests. Uh, about the role uh, their community plays um, in their growth as a baker, both personally and professionally. Uh, most of my listeners are familiar with the you know, various social media platforms, including Instagram, which is how we originally connected, um, and, and have, they, they've been able to connect and, and learn from bakers around the world, the kind of sharing wisdom about baking and technique. And, um, I'm curious what, you know, what your experience with digital media has been, um, I imagine it's something your grandfather and father didn't have to deal with too much. Um, well, it was just not there. It's just not there, yeah. But I will tell you, my father and my grandfather as well, but my father loved new technology. And I think that one of the things in baking with your five senses and in baking batch after batch, you're accumulating a library of information, which eventually helps you fine-tune things um, as you're baking on a given day. It's not very different than what Instagram does mm. um, by, you know, accumulating pictures of hashtags. Um, how is that access to, like, computer technology? Has that, have you seen that affect kind think, of the yeah. growth of your baker, your company at all? I think what's interesting with um, social media is that it really is a good... I mean, I view my bread as a form of social media. You don't eat bread on your own. The, the original social media. <laughs> the right. original social media, so to speak. Um, you share bread. You grow grain together. You eat it um, and turn it, uh, and transform it together. Um, you share it together. The word copain in French means someone with whom you share bread. Um, so I think that, you know, the opportunity of social media is that or it, it probably probably reducing it way too much. Um, but one of the opportunities is, you know, broadening the reach of that um, community beyond the neighborhood, beyond um, how far away you can ship your bread. Mm-hmm. Um, as international bread royalty, uh, your community uh, consists of women like Ina Garten, uh, cookbook author Dory Greenspan, Alice Waters of Chez Panisse, uh, the latter of whom provided your books forward. Um, you've been quoted as calling these women your guardian angels uh, for their role uh, that they've played in your life. Can you tell us a little bit more about those relationships? Mm -hmm. The women you just cited, and as well as um, the men and women that surround me daily, are people who inspire me and nurture and feed my my way of advancing in the world. And I have been fortunate that m growing up in a Franco-American um, environment, I was, and, you know, being in a neighborhood of Paris where, that drew um, incredible um, people, um, I was fortunate to be able to link um, and to, to meet um, people that I, have come to call my guardian angels because there are people that I look up to, people who have, um, whose work um, has been inspiring um, and um, with whom there is this 
conversation to feed the world ultimately mm. one way or another in our different ways mm-hmm. uh, yeah i can only imagine you know having those friendships growing up and in as you took over were, were just invaluable to to uh that transition of 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 leadership for you and it starts with the people that come into the bakery on a given morning and who say hello can i have a croissant this morning and the conversation you will have thereafter with them um people coming from two down doors down the street or someone who will have just landed off a plane and was in paris for a month mm-hmm. so speaking of community uh i've noticed you're an avid bike writer or a biker is is a different term cyclist, cyclist. okay <laughs> uh, and, you know when i think biker i think uh, yeah, I, mean, <laughs> I think motorcycles in those days actually are a little bit long gone yeah it's, obviously I, i'm not a biker i don't know the terminology but uh i'm assuming you have baking or biking friends around the world well i i've, I've been a city cyclist um uh, for a very long time my father and i used to go Um, on rides around the city and searching for foods, sharing a moment together. Um, and over the time, I've met other <laughs> cyclists and I sl- slowly became acquainted with road cyclists. Uh, and the architect of my cafe in London um, has been um, introduced, well, he's introduced me to um, the amazing um Um, Rafa Cycling Club community and um, they are a group of men and women that I love to share the road with because I have n- I really see the parallels between the communities that baking hmm. and cycling have in common and is there a, a chapter in the US that you've oh, been able to connect chapters, okay. yeah I've actually one of the highlights of um, my um, tour um, in New York Los Angeles or San Francisco Um, has been to be able to cycle with um, other members um, in the cities. And it's sharing the road is, and sharing bread is special. Yeah. Well, hopefully they're actually sharing the road out here in, in California. It could be a little bit different experience, I'm sure, <laughs> around no, the world. Have been. It's, it's, it's been pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, some cities are not so bike friendly. But um, Apollonia, we are closing in on the end of our time here. I want to honor your your valuable time here. I know you have places to go here in San Francisco. Uh, but before uh, we leave, I wanted to give you a chance to tell our audience about where they can find you online, uh, find your book, and learn more about Poilan. Yeah. So, I have a website. It's Poilan, P-O-I-L-A-N-E dot com. Our social media is Pain Poilan, P-A-I-N Poilan. And if you hashtag bread cooking, um, you will see my adventures using bread as an ingredient. Amazing hashtag bread, bread cooking, cooking instead of bread cool. cooking. <laughs> um, so this is the end of your book tour. It is. Where do you go from here? I return to Paris. Holiday seasons is coming up and um, I need to be close with my team and we need to rock this Um, holiday period. Extra extra busy season coming up? Or always, Indeed. always? It busy. always is. We are not a business that is all that seasonal. But nonetheless, Christmas, the holidays, um, are, um, the wintertime in general are a time where people celebrate, come together around the table, 
and we get the most beautiful orders mm. of decorated loaves, um, you know, special orders of um, different biscuits for the holiday seasons, different cookies. I just will not manage that one <laughs> um, for for custom orders. And, and it's a special time. Yeah. Well, I can't imagine a better thing to have to share with your family or on the holidays than your big hug of bread. Um, so, Apollonia, thank you so much for coming on the show and, and safe travels to you. Thank you for greeting me. Abloni's new book is titled Palan, The Secrets of the World Famous Bread Bakery. Available now in stores wherever you buy books. Without you, I feel like.